thank you all again for being here with us today. I think you can hopefully uh, decipher the theme uh, for today's worship service when you think about the names of Jesus that we've been going through for the last several weeks. We've looked at the actual name of Jesus, Jesus the Son of God, as servant, last week as teacher, and today we're looking at him as shepherd. And, and it is a dominant theme in Scripture, and there's, there's a lot that we'll have a chance to try to dive into uh, this morning. Before I get into it, though, I want to uh, go back to one thing I said in the announcements just to make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to Easter registrations. I was thinking about this as we were continuing to worship, that if you can't, if you can't come to any service but the 1030, still go ahead and register, right? We'll, we'll have to kind of have a wait list that we might be uh, materializing and developing as we try to reposition people. We don't want anyone to feel like you can't come. So if that's your only service, still go ahead and, and, and register, and we'll kind of make note of that and do our best to accommodate just wanted you to know that we're having to juggle some things at this time uh, as we prepare for Easter Sunday, which is a good, good problem to have, right? It's a, it's a good thing as it shows us that hopefully uh, our culture is able to kind of get on the other side of this pandemic, Lord willing. Um, but that being said, let's, let's get started on our discussion today. I actually want to begin with a little bit of an experiment. Uh, I like to experiment with the congregation from time to time and get you guys to participate in some polling and some, some surveys and things along those lines. And, and here's what I want to do. I, I came across this article this past week. It was written in 2018, and it was uh, based upon a bunch of data and polling that was done around, uh, I think that said more than 1,000 folks that were in the marketing and advertising industries. And the questions that they were asking them were related to whether or not these uh, marketing strategies would utilize voiceovers in part of their uh, brand, uh, product development, appeal, all those different advertising approaches that they often utilize, you know. And, and a majority of these marketing strategies said, yes, we're going to use voiceovers in some capacity. And so then the follow-up question were, well, who are you going to use? What voice are you going to pursue? And it gave you a list of the top 10 most recognizable voices that so many of these marketers and advertisers wanted to utilize to promote their products and their brands. And, and I was looking at this article and I thought, well, I could just read this list of these names and, and you know, kind of share the information with you. But then I actually thought well, it'd be more fun to test it out and see how identifiable these names really are to the masses to see if these are actually decent strategies. And so uh, rather than do all 10, uh, we don't have time for that. I, I picked three. Okay, and, and I think you'll get most of these, but I'm gonna, I've got an audio clip of, of three different voices today, and I'm going to play them for you, and I'm curious to see if you can recognize this voice. Now, the first one I'm going to play for you, I would say is the most difficult of the morning. I'm going to start off with the, more of the challenge. I think the last two are pretty easy, um, but, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to play you a clip, and at the end of it, I'm going to ask you to, by just show of hands, if you think you know the voice, and then we'll see if you're, you're accurate. Now, this first clip, though, is actually from a, a new series that is on HBO Max. I think it's called The World of Calm. And it actually speaks to this whole theory of voice recognition because the whole series is just beautiful images of nature and landscape. And they, they choose these voices of people to come on and narrate these stories about what you're seeing. And it's designed to like make you calm and at ease. In fact, some of them are called sleep stories because it's supposed to help you go to sleep. So the, the clip that I'm showing you this morning or playing for you this morning is one that's about birds. And the imagery was real beautiful on the actual show. Um, and it's a voice that's supposed to be somewhat recognizable and familiar and, and to put you at ease and calm and hopefully drift off to sleep. Now, I just want to say this, okay? It takes a bold move for a preacher in his opening illustration to play an audio clip that is designed to make people sleep, okay? But the way I figure, some of you are well on your way anyway, so I might as well just help you get there, right? 
Um, but I, we'll play this one. This one to me is the most difficult. It's about 40 seconds long. We'll, we'll play this one and we'll see if you guys can recognize it. Go for it. It's about birds. Groups of snow geese take individual routes all over North America, from the Gulf of Mexico to breeding grounds in the Arctic. Don't cheat. Don't tell anybody. Give you a little bit more. Some travel in families, the parents leading their young. They are guided by natural landmarks like the Mississippi River, one giant winding road pointing the way home. All right, so I'm curious, how many of you think you know what voice just said Mississippi River, right? Raise your hand if you think you can recognize the voice. All right, not many, okay? Those of you with your hands raised, anyone? Nicole Kidman, some of you that were in the pre-planning meeting had an insight there. (laughs) Nicole Kidman, all right, she was one of the ones on the list. Now these next two are far easier in my mind and they come from movies that many of you have probably seen so that's gonna give you some additional context to probably draw them to mind and it probably won't take you as long. So here's what I'm gonna do on this one. Uh, As soon as you think you know the voice, raise your hand. Okay, let's go for the second one here. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Baseball. America's ruled by like an army of steamrollers. And it raced like a blackboard. Everybody keep your hand raised if you think you know it. All right, see, that's the majority. Okay, you can stop that one. As great as that clip is, who was it? James Earl Jones. Okay, James Earl Jones is obviously on that list as well, but he was not the top choice. The next clip is the top choice, the most sought-after voice for these sorts of efforts and voiceover uh, needs. Let's play the last one. Raise your hand as soon as you think you know who it is. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still a whole of right. in my head. Who is it? I think it's the excitement. Morgan Freeman. Freeman. You didn't even need to get past the last line. It's from the Shawshank Redemption. It's a great clip, great clip right there. He is the most sought after voice in Hollywood. Now, here's my question for you this morning. How were you able to do that? What's going on in your mind to be able to distinguish between those voices? It's actually a question that's garnered a lot more attention recently because voice recognition technology continues to be a main way in which we operate and function. In fact, uh, industries that are in charge of things like Alexa and Siri, this is what they're researching, right? What is going on in the brain for you to distinguish between these voices? Because as incredible as the technologies are today, Alexa and Siri can't tell the difference between your voice and mine. They can hear a voice, they understand what it's saying, but they can't distinguish the differences and that's where they wanna take it. That's where they wanted, which has some pretty cool implications when you think about security and identity protection and all those other things. And so they've been doing a lot more research about what goes on in the human brain to distinguish between verses. ABC News developed an article not too long ago, I think it was in 2018 if I'm not mistaken, that was talking about this, this research, and here was some of the quotes from the article. Uh, it says, we humans have different speaker models for different individuals said Nareesh Sharma, a psychologist from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and the lead author of this recent study. Here's what uh, she continues to say. When you listen to a conversation, you switch between different models in your brain so you can understand each speaker better. People develop speaker models in their brains as they are exposed to different voices, taking into account subtle differences in features such as cadence and timbre. 
By naturally switching and adapting between different speaker models based on who's talking, people learn to identify and understand different speakers, right? So we have these different models that get ignited in our brain when you hear a different voice. Your, your brain is, is, is creating these models that associates with a particular voice, which leads to the follow-up question, why does everybody want Morgan Freeman, right? Like, what is it about his voice that is the most sought after? Yes, it's recognizable, but your model for Morgan Freeman has been built up. Right? In fact, Time Magazine wrote an article about this in 2016. Here's what they said to answer that question. Some of the voices we hear all the time, they really form a backdrop of our lives, says Pamela Rutledge, director of the Media Psychology Research Center. At the movies, we've watched Freeman play the good guy over and over and over again. And those years of positive associations add up. So the model in your brain for Morgan Freeman is positive. It's good. It's, it, he's the good guy. If Morgan Freeman tells you to buy a soda, you're going to do it because he's trustworthy, right? That's what you associate with him. There are a lot of other recognizable voices that none of these marketers are using because they're more inflammatory or contradictory, right? I mean, there, there are different associations and different models that we associate with them. And so Morgan Freeman has that positive association. Therefore, he becomes this most sought after voice, which leads to this kind of final dynamic that often plays a role in this voice recognition process in our brains, right? That your brain, when it hears a voice, does two different things, okay? It looks for, number one, the message, right? So the content of the message, this is according to International Business Magazine in 2017. The first thing you're doing is trying to decipher the words that are actually coming to you. Your brain is gonna translate hello different than fire, right? So part of it is the message. The second thing that your brain immediately tries to understand is the voice, the voice that's communicating the message. And what it has shown, what research has shown is that the more familiar the voice, the softer and the more receptive you become, which makes sense, right? If you're gonna get good, bad news, right? But that bad news is being delivered by a trusted voice like your mom, your dad, your spouse, your brother, your sister, a close friend, you immediately soften and become more receptive to it because it's familiar, right? So, so we instinctively uh, embrace those messages to those familiar voices, and especially those that carry those positive associations and positive models. All those things are taking place in your brain, which leads us to the obvious question today. How do you respond to the voice of God? Is it familiar to you? Is it trustworthy? Is that, is that model in your brain receptive and responsive to what it is that he has to say? That's a, that's a complex question, honestly. And I would anticipate we would all have different answers, right? Depending upon your relationship with God, your history with God, your season of life right now, and how you feel like he is speaking to you or not speaking to you. That's a, that's a difficult thing for us to wrestle with, but that's exactly what I want us to consider this morning. Now, here's the difference. Whenever you start talking about the voice of God, a lot of times the natural question is, well, how do I know that God's speaking to me? Like, how do I know what he's saying? Well, we, we honestly tried to address a good chunk of that last week. Right? When we talked about Jesus as teacher, we talked about all the different ways that we learn. Right? Remember different types of learners. There's visual learners, auditory learners, kinetic learners who like to do by experience. There's reading and writing learners. And we talked about all the different ways that, that God can teach us by the things that we see in creation, the way we hear him prompt us and tug in our hearts and our, in our prayer life, by, by actually living life and doing certain things, by experience of the way he can speak to us and teach us through experiences. But obviously, more than anything, it's his word, right? If you wanna know what God has to say to you, he wrote it down, right? So, so the question of how do I know God's voice, listen, we, we've talked about that. 
The question today is, how do I know I can trust God's voice? How do I know that it's good? Am I familiar enough with it that I want to respond to it positively and affirmatively because I know he has my best interest in mind? And the only way that I think that we can truly answer that question is to look to God as our good shepherd. And that's a a really powerful image that you see throughout the scriptures. And my, my hope is that as we journey into this today, we will see exactly what we've already said and read and sung about today, that his goodness and his mercy follow those who follow him and rest in him. And that's what we're gonna try to explore. So grab your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel 34. That's where we're gonna start, okay? The reality is, is that this is such a dominant image in scripture. It's, it, we've got a lot to cover and I'm gonna do my best to make sure we do it uh, efficiently. Uh, but when you start thinking about shepherds, this is a huge, important role in the Palestinian and Judaic economy, right? I mean, this was a, a huge responsibility to care for flocks that were really treasured possessions. You, you would take care of sheep, um, not really just necessarily to slaughter, but really for their milk, for their wool, for, for all the different things that they would provide. And so it was a main fixture of the economy, and shepherds played an important role in protecting them. Uh, But as you can see, as time progresses, the connotation that's associated with uh, with shepherds becomes kind of mixed because there are good shepherds and there are bad shepherds. Uh, Shepherds became uh, known in certain circles and at times to have a bad reputation as being thieves, as being robbers because their nomadic lifestyle, the fact that they were roaming the land, uh, allowed them a certain ability to potentially steal and, and rob others. And so sometimes people looked at shepherds in a negative light even though they were given a very important role. And, and so as that kind of comparison of good shepherds and bad shepherds materialized, it was also a term that was attributed to leadership, to kings, to rulers, to authorities. Right? They were known to be the shepherds of Israel. And just like you see in life and as we see throughout the scriptures, there were good leaders and there were bad ones. Right? Good shepherds and bad shepherds in terms of leading. And that imagery of shepherding became a chief image that was used throughout the scriptures. And so Ezekiel 34, there, there are numerous references, okay, numerous references that you can find in Jeremiah and Isaiah, but Ezekiel has this really profound description of it in Ezekiel 34. So I just want to read it uh, in snippets. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to read just a few elements of it today to kind of get a biblical foundation for how shepherds were viewed in this imagery of understanding God and our relationship to him. So let's start with 34 verse one. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Right, so you see the indictment of a bad shepherd, right? That, that they have only looked out for themselves, only cared for themselves. They've neglected the sheep. They haven't healed them, protected them, cared for them. They haven't searched for the lost and so they've been scattered and made vulnerable. And so God responds against this indictment of the poor shepherds 
that have been leading Israel. Skip down to verse 11. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend to them in a good pasture, and the mountain kites of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture of the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And just to close it off, let's skip down to verse 30. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. It's like Psalm 23 coming to life, isn't it? I mean, what he's gonna do for a sheep, he's gonna do everything the shepherds didn't do. He's gonna heal them, he's gonna search for them, he's gonna lead them into pastures and make them lie down. And so what you see is that God is the chief example of the ultimate shepherd. And you find that as early as Genesis in a blessing over Joseph. You see it through the Psalms, like we read earlier this morning. You see it in Ezekiel. Time and time again, you see this picture that while we may see Poor examples of shepherding in this life. God is the ultimate depiction of a good shepherd. And then comes Jesus, right? Jesus steps into this imagery in the New Testament, speaking about the lost sheep of Israel, teaching parables about finding the lost sheep. And even in the later New Testament, you see references to Jesus specifically with this title. First Peter refers to him as the good shepherd of our souls, uh, the, the chief shepherd. You see Hebrews 13 talk about him as the great shepherd time and time again, we see Jesus step into this role and this name as being a shepherd. And so that's what we wanna look at in greater detail today. But, but here's what I wanna do to, to continue to set the tone for how we need to hear and understand this teaching that we find in the scriptures. In the same way that last week we said, if we're gonna see Jesus as a teacher, that means we need to see ourselves as students, right? If, if, if we're gonna see Jesus as a shepherd, then we are sheep, Right, so be excited about that. You're not a lion, not a bear, right? Not a worm, you're sheep, okay? And, and so as exciting as that may sound, there's a really powerful lesson to be uh, learned from that identification. And, and I thought about different ways to convey it. Uh, there's a great video that brings it to light that you've probably seen, but I wanna share with you this morning. Uh, but essentially, the reason this is such a powerful image is because sheep, they will ignore all other voices except the voice of their shepherd. And when they hear that voice of their shepherd, they, they immediately respond to it and they depend on that shepherd and that shepherd alone. And that's the sort of life that we should live. And so here's this video that, that you may have seen online before. I can't remember where it's taken. It's in, a, it's in another country and the, they, they test this theory out. There's the uh, pasture land of sheep and they have these tourists come up and try to call the sheep. Um, and, and then they compare their effectiveness in calling the sheep versus the actual shepherd, who's the last guy wearing the orange jacket. So it's about a minute and a half long, but let's, let's watch and see how this plays out, because I think this gives us a really good image. One more time. Oh, one is Quiet. 
Here's the shepherd. Ooh. Look at them, look at them. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? They are coming. Oh my god. Oh my god. I can't believe this. Oh my god. God, this is amazing! One more! Yeah, Eunice made him go away. Oh my God! Was that cool or what? Oh my God! <laughs> you will never have the same again. Oh my God! I can't believe the video coming. I love that video. I love that illustration. Because it brings to life what you see in the scriptures, right? What I love about it is that all these other voices that were calling to the sheep, men, they were just ignoring them. Like they were face forward, eating the grass. I mean, they were paying no attention. But as soon as the shepherd spoke, man, their, their heads lifted up and they came running. It was a picture of that ultimate dependence and that ability to only trust the voice of the shepherd. That's exactly what you and I are supposed to do in our relationship to God and to see Jesus as a shepherd. But as we will see in the scriptures, that's, always easier said than done. So when you think about a, a great biblical passage to really bring this teaching to life, uh, it's hard to get uh, one that's greater than John chapter 10. I mean, we've read through Psalm 23 several times. It's poetic, it's beautiful, but John chapter 10, Jesus really speaks to this analogy. Uh, when you think about all of the different I am statements in the Gospel of John, how many times Jesus comes forward and says, I am the vine, I am the bread of life, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. Here in John chapter 10, we have him refer to himself as the gate and the good shepherd. And it becomes such a fundamental teaching. So turn to John chapter 10. And, and as we prepare to read this, it is incredibly important that we understand the context within which this teaching is offered. I told you last week, right, that context is so important when understanding scripture and, and trying to study scripture. And so you've got to ask yourself, what's going on here in this story? In chapter 9, is incredibly important to our understanding of chapter 10, okay? And so we don't have time to read all of chapter nine, so let me give you some highlights. Uh, essentially, what happens in chapter nine is a man that was born blind is brought to Jesus. And he's brought to Jesus, and the question is, Jesus, why is this man blind? Is it because of his sins or the sins of his parents? Which is a depiction of a very common belief at that point in time, right? That if you experience some form of deformity, abnormality, uh, any sort of trial or circumstance, disease, it was a result of either your sin or the sin of your parents. And that's how people viewed the world. And Jesus uh, combats that idea with a remarkable answer. He says, neither. He was born blind so that God can demonstrate his work through him, which is a total shift of how you and I should potentially perceive the challenges and the obstacles and the hindrances we may encounter. But that's another sermon, right? And so Jesus then proceeds to demonstrate God's work through the blind man by healing him. Right, and so the man is healed, and word about his healing spreads everywhere. And the Pharisees decide they want to investigate it. 
right? Well, what, what actually took place? So they call the man in, call the man in, and they start asking him questions. Who healed you? How did he heal you? When did he heal you? And in that investigation, they discover that Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. Well, that was, a, that was an incredible dis, uh, a sign of disobedience in the eyes of the Pharisees. And so they say there in verse 16, well, this man can't be from God. He broke the Sabbath, right? So immediately, they've got this, this, this law and this rule that allows them to discredit this work of Jesus when they continue to be skeptical. So they bring in the man's parents, and they want to verify, is this in fact your son? Was he in fact born blind? And the parents agree, yes, this is our son. Yes, he was born blind. And so they ask the parents, well, then who healed him? But the parents were too afraid to say. Right? It's really interesting, right? They were too afraid to say. And so their answer was, well, he's of age, just ask him. And the reason they were so fearful is because they had already known that the, the Pharisees had made a determination that anyone that saw Jesus as the Messiah would be removed from the synagogue. Right? They'd, be, they'd be kicked out, essentially. They'd be ex, excommunicated, for lack of a better term, from the community. And they, they didn't want that. And so they didn't say. They didn't want to answer. So they bring the man back another time for more questioning. And they continue to ask him these questions. Is this man from God? And, and the, the uh, blind man says something so powerful. Right? He says, I don't know where he's from. All I know is I was blind, and now I see. All right, but they continue to prompt and, and, and continue to live in their skepticism. How did he do it? How did he do it? <laughs> and I love the, the man's response. He goes, I've already told you. Why do you keep asking? What, you want to become his disciples too? Right? And he kind of like puts a jab right back at the Pharisees. And the Pharisees take offense to it. And they say, oh, no, no, no. We would never become his disciples. We're disciples of Moses. Right? We know Moses is from God. And, and so then uh, the man comes back with another rebuttal and says, well, let me just tell you something. Only God could heal me, right? So of course he's from God. Well, then they get really angry. How dare you lecture us? You were steeped in sin and they cast him out of the synagogue, right? So then Jesus hears that this man's been cast out of the synagogue and he goes up to him and he finds him and he starts talking to him about the son of man. And, and do you know the son of man? And there's this conversation and Jesus reveals himself as the son of man. And in that revelation, Jesus says, the Son of Man comes to bring judgment so that those who are blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees are nearby and they overhear this and they ask Jesus, are you saying that we are blind? And that's the question that prompts John chapter 10. All right, so important context. Let's read then how Jesus responds. Starting in verse one. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never, they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. And therefore Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. So, so this is a very interesting passage. 
And what Jesus is doing is using a very familiar illustration that everyone who heard him speak would understand what he was talking about. And, and we talked about this a little bit in our Lenten devotionals. If you go back to, I don't know, earlier in the week, we talked about Jesus being the door. And Sharon Greitz wrote a great passage or a great uh, reflection about this particular passage. And, and in that, what we discover is that in this point in time, the way that they would keep sheep, they had this sheep pen or the sheep fold that was built with rocks, this enclosure, and all the walls were made of these rocks, and there'd be one little opening. And, and I used to read this section and think that when Jesus said, I'm the gate, you know, I actually pictured a wooden gate, you know, around a sheep pen. But the reality is, is that he was still serving as the shepherd. It's one in the same illustration, because the way it would work is that in that opening, they didn't have an actual physical gate. The shepherd would lay down in that opening so that the sheep couldn't get out and no one could get in without his being aware of it, right? And so that was a role of the shepherd to protect those sheep. And so Jesus is using this illustration in, in conveying that there is a, a very stark difference between the thieves and the robbers and the good shepherd who serves as the gate. Now here's what's interesting about it, is if you think about chapter nine and really just the context, what is taking place here is that the Pharisees believe themselves to be the shepherds of Israel, right? They believe they're the protectors, they're the ones that are taking care of the flock. They're the ones that are entrusted with that responsibility. And Jesus is the outsider, right? He's the intruder. He is the imp- We don't even know where this guy's from. We follow Moses, right? We're the gatekeepers. We're the shepherds. That's the spirit of it. And so Jesus, creatively, like he always says, gives this illustration without saying it, somewhat passive-aggressive, really, and, and implies, are you really? Who's really the good shepherd in this situation? Are you a thief or am I the shepherd, right? And he begins to call that into question and he gives us some pretty clear distinctions, right, to explain that the difference, the litmus test of knowing between the good shepherd and the thief and the robber is that the thief and the robber comes in to kill and steal and destroy. The good shepherd protects his sheep, gives them life and gives them life to the full. So go back to chapter nine. What had happened to the blind man? Right, he was kicked out of the synagogue. His life was, was ruined and hurt by the Pharisees. But with Jesus, it was restored, and not just restored, restored abundantly. Right? And so he's making a very clear distinction between thieves and robbers and the good shepherd. And that the litmus test are those who are going to actually give you abundant life versus those who come in and actually try to destroy it. So there are some very important implications for us to consider when you think about Jesus serving in this role, in in this imagery of him being the good shepherd who acts as that gate. Okay, three things I wanna make sure we don't miss this morning. Number one, there are thieves and robbers and wolves that are constantly seeking to break in, kill, steal, and destroy. We have to be on guard against those voices, those people, those teachings, those ideologies, those philosophies, right? And, and the image is pretty powerful, right? A thief would have to climb over rocks, come in, and physically take the sheep because they know the sheep wouldn't listen to their voice, right? And, and so the extent to which a thief and a robber would have to, to go to actually steal another sheep would, would actually be pretty involved, which tells us that these thieves, these robbers, these these people that come in and seek, they, they stop at nothing. So we have to be on guard. That's a reality. 
We have to be thinking about whose voice am I listening to? Right? Am I able to truly just recognize the voice of the shepherd or am I constantly being led astray by others who would actually be leading me in the wrong direction? We have to be on guard against those things, which leads us to the second implication. How do you know the difference? How are you able to identify the voice of a thief or a robber, so to speak, to go with that imagery? Well, the thief and the robber, they tend to operate out of self-interest, right? They, they tend to speak words of self-gratification, self-indulgence, self-exaltation. Right? You think about the Pharisees. They had a, they had a system. They had an infrastructure that, that preserved their power and their influence. They did not care about the blind man. They cared about their position, right? Jesus was a threat to that position. And so they were gonna do anything they could to discredit Jesus and discredit this healing. And they wanted to protect and preserve this infrastructure that was in place to their own self-benefit. So more often than not, the voices that we hear in our culture today, in our world today, that can lead us astray tend to sound like the voices that lead towards self-gratification, self-exaltation, self-indulgence, and ways to protect and preserve their ability to pursue those things. Right? That, that's what you tend to find in the voice of those that would constantly try to lead us astray, which leads us to the third implication, which this is, this is difficult to, to articulate, so I'm gonna do my best. But especially when you think about what takes place in chapter nine, is that what'll happen more often than not is that on the surface, it'll look like the thief and the robber is actually looking out for something that is good. They'll set up a system, they'll set up a, a culture or a circumstance that on the appearance and on the surface level seems good, and that when Jesus encounters it, it will feel contradictory to what God wants, right? So what, did, what was the litmus test for the Pharisees? To give you an example, right? The Sabbath. This man can't be from God. He violated the Sabbath. He's a sinner, isn't it clear? It's written right there, honor the Sabbath. He's disobedient to God's law. He could not be from God, right? And so on the surface, don't you think people would listen to that and go, well, gosh, they're right. It's written right there. We have to honor the Sabbath, and Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. Is he really from God? Like that, on the surface, it seemed contradictory to God's law, right? But in reality, the further you go into it, what you discover is that as Jesus demonstrated time and time again, right, throughout the Gospels, he was Lord of the Sabbath. What's better to do on the Sabbath, to heal or to hurt, to leave the ox in the ditch or to pull it out? What God wanted was for this man to be healed. And so he redeems and actually upholds the law. He doesn't break it, but on the surface, it was easy for his opponents to try to accuse him of actually breaking the law. And that happens for us today all the time. Let me try to bring it into our cultural landscape, okay? The God of America, and we've talked about this before, the God of America, the teaching of America, comes upon the altar of freedom and love, right? Everybody is entitled to their inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You deserve ultimate freedom, freedom to live however you wanna live, love whoever you wanna love, marry whoever you wanna marry, identify however you wanna identify, do whatever you wanna do. That is the American way, that is your rights. And if you infringe upon that right and that freedom, then you are unloving, right? And if you infringe upon that freedom in the name of God, 
in the name of Jesus? Don't you know that Jesus himself said, love your neighbor? Don't judge others? And on the surface, it seems that if we engage with that sort of mentality, we are contradicting God's law. We're abusing it, right? And so that's the voice. That's the teaching. That's the philosophy. And it conveniently leaves out the Bible's definition of freedom and love. Uses the cultural definitions of it. And uses God's word to adhere to the cultural definitions of it but leaves out the actual biblical definitions. Because what does the Bible say is true freedom? True freedom, according to the scriptures, is not self-indulgence, self-exaltation, self-actualization, it's self-denial. That's where you find freedom, dying to self, taking up your cross daily, becoming a slave of righteousness, according to Romans. That's where freedom is found. And what is love? Love is absolutely accepting people for who they are, a hundred thousand times over. But how many times do we need to go to the scripture to see that love also includes accountability? It also includes transformation. It also includes a call to holiness. How many times do we need to read about the woman caught in adultery? Yes, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. How many times do we need to talk about Nicodemus? Yes, I love you. I will eat with you. I accept you for who you are. And that transformation, I'm going to go repay back everyone that I stole from, right? It always leads to change and transformation. Jesus accepted the blind man exactly for who he was and changed him. That's love. That's accountability, right? And so that's what leads to the abundant life. This is so critical, right? Is because the teachings that tell you self-exaltation, self-actualization, self-gratification, and all those things, they ultimately leave you empty. But the life that chooses sacrifice, surrender, servanthood, accountability, growth, sanctification, holiness, whatever words you want to assign to it, that's what leads to life abundantly. And that's where the teaching becomes difficult, right? That's when we really begin to ask ourselves, how do you respond to the voice of God? Because when you hear, you know, indulge in what you want, ultimate freedom, man, that's easy to get behind. That's easy to embrace. But when you hear, no, die to self, take up your cross, well, that's when you go, ooh, gosh, I don't know, is that, is that really what he wants me to do? So how do you respond to God's voice? Let me ask you this. How would you describe your life? Is it empty or abundant? Right, if you feel an emptiness that continues to plague you, then perhaps it's because you, you fall into from time to time those voices that lead you towards that impulse of self-indulgence as opposed to self-denial. Right, the abundant life is found in following Christ and his definition of freedom and love. Right, so some very strong implications. And all of that is driven by this image of this good shepherd protecting the sheep. He's not doing it to hurt you. He's doing it to protect you and to give you the abundant life he created you to have. Right? So that's, that's the gate. Now, this is not a different comparison. Let's try to wrap up very quickly by just looking at these final teachings on him as the good shepherd. Let's pick back up in verse 11. I'm going to read through verse 30 because he speaks on it in a couple different sections. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he does, 
see the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. And the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon possessed and raving mad. Why is anyone listening to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Then sometime later, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, for I and the Father are one. So I love these final descriptions of Jesus as the good shepherd. And it's like I said earlier, this is not a second image in comparison to the gate. It's one and the same. The good shepherd would lay down across that entrance as the gate. And now Jesus just clearly says, I'm the good shepherd. And he gives us a list of reasons of what makes him good. And, And that's how I want to close our time is I just wanna quickly highlight a few of the things that we just heard referenced in Jesus's answers. And, and remember the point here, right? How do you know that what Jesus says, as hard as it is, as difficult as it may be, as challenging as it may feel from time to time, how do you know it's good? How do you know you can trust it? How do you fall into that, that familiarity that allows you to immediately respond with obedience and love and devotion? What are the things that he just reminded us of? What does the good shepherd do? Number one, he dies for you. I say that again, he, he dies for you. I'm the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. Right? How many times does God demonstrate his love for us, your intrinsic worth, your intrinsic value? God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and make no mistake right his life wasn't taken from him it wasn't circumstantial it wasn't accidental he laid it down on his own accord by his own choosing the bible is so clear the penalty for sin is death the reason you and i sit here marred by that reality that inevitability of death is because this world is broken and it is sinful and it is the penalty that awaits all of us who are sinners and Jesus comes forward and says I will take that penalty upon myself he is good and you can trust him because he dies for you he cares for you right the hired hand runs away when he sees danger when he sees the wolf because he doesn't care for his sheep. Jesus cares for you. You think back to those words of Psalm 23, right? He walks with you in all those different seasons with his rod 
and his staff. That rod is to ward off enemies and danger. That staff is to guide and corral the sheep in. And they are a comfort. The shepherd is the one that goes and seeks the one who has gone astray because he cares. Don't ever feel like you are beyond the care of your loving father. He sees you. He loves you. He cares for you. He knows you. I know my sheep, and they know me. They know my voice. That's more than just some intellectual awareness, some academic knowledge, some facts and figures. That is a statement of intimacy. That is a statement of relationship. He knows you. He knows what you need. And so he's going to walk with you in all seasons of life. He's going to walk you to green pastures. He's going to walk you beside quiet waters. Even in the deepest valleys, he will be there with you because he knows your needs, right? He is your shepherd and you shall not want because he's sufficient. He doesn't just know you, he welcomes you. I love that statement. I've got sheep that are not of this fold that I'm going to bring along with me and we're going to have one flock and one shepherd. He's talking about the Gentiles, Right? What we see with Jesus is he has come for every tongue, tribe, and nation. He is not exclusive, he is inclusive. And so should we. To see the value in every tongue, tribe, and nation, he welcomes us all. He's good. And not only is he welcoming, he holds you. I love that last part. The gift of the good shepherd is everlasting life. You're in his hand. You're in the Father's hand, and nothing can ever change that. So I don't know what circumstances you're in today or what you've been in before, but rest assured and build your life upon the assurance that nothing ever removes you from the hands of the Good Shepherd. No matter what may befall you, no matter what grief, no matter what challenge, no matter what circumstance or difficulty or hardship, he holds you in his hand and gives you the promise of everlasting life. And so when you think about that collectively, right, that, that he dies for you, he cares for you, he knows you and welcomes you, and he holds you, we can all rest assured that goodness and mercy follow those who follow him and who rest in him. So do you hear his voice this morning? Do you recognize it? Is it familiar to you? How do you respond? For some of you, the voice is like a deafening shout that you can't escape. He's after you, and you know it. And he's begging and pleading for you to come running. For others, it may sound like a distant whisper. And you've come here today wondering, is he still there? Does he still call? Does he still care? For some of you, you hear his voice and it's met with skepticism and concern and resentment. For others, it's a healing source of comfort. Regardless of where you are in your life today, rest assured that he does speak, he does call. And for those who listen, those who hear his voice and, and drown out all others and come running to him, we can know 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that goodness and mercy will follow those who follow the good shepherd and rest in him. And so follow him today and allow his goodness and his mercy to give your soul the rest it longs for. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the many ways you protect us, the many ways you call to us. And I pray that for every heart that's here this morning, God, you would remind us of that love, that love that protects, that love that once again shows us a life of sacrifice, that we would truly be able to reflect upon the death that you have died on our behalf, that you would allow us to truly understand the depths of your care. Father, the way that you know us, that we can't fool you. God, the way that you welcome us in just as we are. Give us the assurance today that we are forever in your hand. And Father, may we be encouraged when we leave here today comforted once again to know that in all seasons of life, whether to green pastures, quiet waters, or even the deepest valleys, you're with us. And your goodness and your mercy will forever follow us all the days of our lives. So help us to follow you for the weary soul that constantly tries to find rest in other things, God. May we find rest in you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.